G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. And it looks like this episode is going to take us deep into divine council territory. It sure is, mate. Of that, there can be no doubt. Let's just read a couple of verses from our text and then we'll get into it. Genesis 3, verses 22 to 23. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Now, I'm sure you've all heard people say in the past that this is God talking to himself as a trinity, and that's why we have this plural language where God says, one of us. We've already talked about this a bit in various episodes of the podcast. Most obviously, it comes up in Genesis 1.26, where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We also talked about it a bit in our Elohim episode, which I think was episode four of our first season. Let me just say once again for the record that the idea of God talking to himself outside of the incarnation is just silly. We even have it in some Bible translations and paraphrases, but for the doubters among us, I just have to ask, what are you going to do with Bible passages like these? This is Exodus 15 verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Okay, so we have an obvious reference to gods here. In Hebrew, the term is Elim, so there's really no interpretive option aside from divine beings. You can't put men or judges or kings or any other kind of human substitute in here legitimately because the Hebrew simply doesn't allow it. And what about this one? Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. I guess it just makes sense that the uh, the Most High is not the Most High if he's the only God. Yeah, that really strips all the grandeur out of that title, doesn't it? Turns it into a joke. The title Most High naturally fits in a context where there are multiple divine beings, and Yahweh is the greatest of them all. And then we have the reference to the sons of God, which you find in every ancient textual tradition that we can trace to the biblical period for this verse of scripture. It's only the Masoretic text, which was much, much later, that has the variant reading sons of Israel. And that doesn't even make sense because Israel did not exist at the time when God divided the nations, as described in Genesis 11. That phrase, sons of God, is a technical term. To be the son of a particular type of person is to be of the same type or according to the same tradition or having the same kind of nature. The sons of God are lesser gods. We've also got to consider that Genesis 10 records 70 nations, which coincides precisely with the number of gods in the Canaanite pantheon. Assuming, of course, that the Most High God apportioned a divine being to each nation of the known world at the time, as per Deuteronomy 32, as we just read, this turns out to be a perfect fit. It also means that instead of the Canaanite god known as El getting the credit for lordship over the world, that honour goes to Yahweh. And as a matter of fact, the Masoretic reading Sons of Israel may actually be a corruption of an original written as Sons of Bull El. That's a Canaanite title for the Most High God. So we may actually be reading a polemic passage where the author takes the title given to El and appropriates it for Yahweh. 
Just so we're clear, we're not saying that El and Yahweh are the same. And that's not just fitting, but it makes good sense according to the ancient Near Eastern worldview. Let's look at some more passages. This is Psalm 82. Verse 1, a psalm of Asaph, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. Verse 6, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Verse 7, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, Psalm 82 could be considered possibly the clearest of all of these references. We have God in the divine council in the midst of the gods. Obviously, there are other gods present because you can't be in the midst of yourself. God himself goes on to declare that these other divine beings in this council are gods. Then he calls them sons of the Most High. And again, we saw that terminology in the last passage in Deuteronomy 32. It just doesn't get any clearer. God then goes on to declare that their fate will be to die like men. That's a comparative statement. He's not calling them men. He's telling the gods that they're going to die. There's just so much in this passage. But again, we've talked about this before. And you can go back to our earlier episodes to hear more about this. And of course, I go into it in some depth in my book, Answers to Giant Questions. Let's look at another one from the Psalms. This is Psalm 89, verses 5 to 8. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. Now, I would understand if you just had that first bit there about the assembly of the holy ones, you might be able to explain that away as being the saints or something like that, but this is an Old Testament situation, and you don't have glorified believers in view here. The holy ones are divine beings. And even if you thought that these were humans, what are they doing in the sky? This is clearly a reference to divine beings, not earthly ones, and I think the text is pretty clear on that, because that's exactly what it says. Yeah, and we keep seeing this divine council language and this idea of divine beings that surround God in the heavens. I mean, what else could you do with the expression, Lord God of hosts? It literally describes God in charge of an army of divine beings. Maybe if there were just one or two verses like this, you could find some way to explain it away, but there's just too many of them. This is just a tiny sample. We looked at some of the more straightforward stuff. Now, let's look at some examples where you really need to get behind the translation and look at the Hebrew text with the broader context of the ancient world in view. Oh boy, here we go. What about this from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, starting at verse 3. God came from Timan and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. Plague and pestilence are not just some kind of natural phenomena. Those are translations of the names of gods in the pantheon of the Amorites. Their names are Dever and Reshef. This is our God, Yahweh the Most High, making them do what he wants. And we can continue through Habakkuk 3, picking up even more of this stuff. Verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? The rivers and the sea are Canaanite gods, Nahar and Yam. So again, we have a description of the superiority of Yahweh over these other gods. And we've got to be honest, 
Like if we try to take this literally, then we have God being angry at bodies of water. That obviously doesn't make any sense, so the only legitimate reading of this is to understand that these terms refer to personal entities, which in this case are divine beings. Verse 9, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Salah. You split the earth with rivers. This one's a really controversial verse. It's been called the most difficult verse to interpret in the entire Hebrew Bible. We could easily do a full in-depth episode of the podcast on this one verse alone, but that is not our focus. So I'm going to very quickly give you my hot take on what I think it's telling us. In the broader context of this passage, the prophet is taking a swipe at the gods of the surrounding nations and the major ruling powers of history. He takes down the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Akkadians, the Assyrians and the Amorites in the space of just a few verses. And he does this by attributing all the great power of these lesser gods to Yahweh himself. We haven't got the time to go through the whole passage in such great depth, but concerning verse 9, I believe we have a reference to the seven weapons of error, aka Nurgle, otherwise known as Reshef. And you get there when you consider the possibility that the word Shebuot, translated as oaths, could also be read as Shibat, which has been translated as seven arrows with a word. If you're interested in reading more on that, there's a paper accessible online written by John Day. It's called Echoes of Baal's Seven Thunders and Lightnings in Psalm 29 and Habakkuk 3.9 and the Identity of the Seraphim in Isaiah 6. <sighs> That's not even a mouthful at all, is it? And it was published in the academic journal Vetus Testamentum, Volume 29, that's April 1979, pages 143 to 151, specifically you want pages 146 to 147. But Day's treatment of the text doesn't go far enough in tracing the origin of the motif, in my opinion. If you're familiar with the Akkadian myth known as the Era Epic, you will have heard of the Sabetu, the seven spirits of chaos used as the weapons of the god. Era is not just a plague god, but also a god of mayhem and chaos. These seven spirits appear in the Canaanite Baal mythology as the seven lightnings of Baal. That's where Day picks it up in his paper, but he's fixed on the Ugaritic parallels here and doesn't acknowledge the other nations and their gods mentioned in the Habakkuk passage because he's only looking at verse 9 in isolation. The Hebrew Bible never makes explicit mention of the seven, but you can find them if you look hard enough in this verse here in Habakkuk, possibly in Psalm 29, also Ezekiel 9, which draws more heavily on the Mesopotamian aspect, and perhaps even in Revelation, where John mentions the seven spirits of God and the seven thunders. There's more about this in my book. To be clear, this is not me saying that all these gods are the same guy and we have the same God as the pagans. What I am saying is that God, as the Most High, is uniquely in the position of being able to take the credit for anything that these gods can do, because he is sovereign and they have to do what he tells them. That doesn't eliminate their free will, but it does mean that when God wants something done, they have to do it, because he's in charge. That means that the seven weapons of error, or the seven arrows of Reshef, or the seven lightnings of Baal, are all at the disposal of Yahweh the Most High God any time he pleases. So according to this passage, Yahweh is riding a horse into battle, he has unsheathed his bow, and with a word, he commands his seven arrows or lightnings or rods or whatever you want to call them. Anyway, as I said, that's a hot take coming from me, which you won't hear from many other commentators, 
although I'm not alone, but I haven't seen anybody else make the connection back to the error epic. Let's keep going. Uh, this is verse 10 in Habakkuk 3. The mountains saw you and writhed, the raging waters swept on, the deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high. This one's a bit more straightforward. We have the mountains, which according to the Assyrians represented their god. They depicted Ashur as a mountain. Then we have the waters, or in Hebrew, the Mayim, which represents the domain of spirits, which we've talked about before in season one when we tackled biblical cosmology. Parallel to that, we also have the deep, or in Hebrew, Tehom, which is a reference to the cosmological home of chaos and evil. Tehom connects to the Akkadian Temtum, which is cognate to Tiamat, the chaos monster equivalent to Leviathan. The Bible tells us that Leviathan has seven heads. So you can see that this whole text is just absolutely loaded with this cosmic imagery, full of the gods of various nations, and it continues as we get into verse 11. We started this passage with the Exodus, and the prophet is now taking us through the conquest. Remember recently on the podcast, we talked about the long day of Joshua. And here we have it remembered by the prophet as he continues to talk smack about the gods of the nations. Verse 11, the sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. So this one talks again about Shemesh and Yarik, the gods of the Amorites, and how God took them down. You should be starting to see by now that the text is absolutely loaded with acknowledgments that there are other gods. And rather than getting carried away with who they are and what they can do and what power they have and all the rest of it, we need to keep in mind that our God is the Most High God, the only one worthy of our worship. So that was a bit of fun and a huge rabbit trail away from our text, but I thought it was worth spending the time just reinforcing the fact that the Israelites did not live in some kind of cultural vacuum that didn't acknowledge the reality of the gods of the nations. And usually when I say that, there's some kind of objection raised by people who want to say that Israel were monotheistic, so they can't be acknowledging other gods. Well, uh, let me raise some kind of objection and say, uh, I thought Israel were monotheistic, so they can't be acknowledging other gods, right? Just to be clear, monotheism doesn't mean that there is only one god. Monotheism means being faithful to only one god. It's like monogamy in marriage. I am a monogamous man. I've only got one wife and that's all I want. But just because I'm faithful to only one wife, that doesn't mean that I don't believe other women exist. Anyway, let's get back to our text. We've gotten ahead of ourselves here because the text begins with God's statement that the man has become like one of them, like one of the gods. There is a comparative preposition there, which means that they're not the same. This isn't God saying that the humans have now become gods. So you're saying that this is not the, uh, the fast track to becoming godly? No, unfortunately, being godly and being godlike are very different. And this is not some kind of theosis. It's not even becoming like a god in any kind of substantive sense. The text actually does explain what it means in this case because the statement that the Lord God makes actually qualifies in what sense the man and his wife have become like the gods. Specifically, that is a reference to having the knowledge of good and evil. But if we honestly think that we've attained the wisdom of the gods by virtue of the transgression of these humans in the Garden of Eden, we're fooling ourselves. The reality is that a mere bite of that fruit is no substitute for the unfathomable wisdom of the divine. You'd think that if partaking of that fruit had been sufficient to really possess divine wisdom, then humanity wouldn't be in such a desperately depraved situation as we see when we look around us. But let's not forget what that fruit really represents. 
This isn't about knowing everything. This isn't about possessing advanced technology. And it's certainly not about opening your third eye or any of that kind of new age rubbish. We talked about this last season on the podcast, for those who came in late. The knowledge of good and evil, according to biblical usage, is a phrase that refers to the wisdom that comes with maturity and is used in situations where judgment and discretion and discernment are required. And you know what that means? That God was being sarcastic? Yeah, like mankind really knows what's best for themselves. Keep dreaming. God is absolutely belittling the humans after their ill-fated attempt at self-glorification. They thought that they'd found a shortcut to the wisdom of the ancient gods. So Chris, I shared with you earlier the trailer for that horror movie from 1932 called Freaks. Not many people today would have seen the movie, although many people would be familiar with the iconic chant from the banquet scene in the film where the circus freaks declare that they're going to make the conniving young trapeze artist one of them. And they start chanting, We accept her, we accept her, one of us, one of us, gobble gobble, gobble gobble, one of us, one of us. That scene has been picked up in all kinds of popular media ever since, including a song by the Ramones, and a Simpsons Christmas special, and an episode of South Park. Yeah, it's, uh, it was pretty creepy, I've got to be honest, uh, and I don't think uh, it enticed me to watch the movie, but I do remember when they quoted it on The Simpsons, and now I know where I came from. The thing that's so haunting about the film is that the, the trapeze artist was plotting to marry one of the circus freaks who was a dwarf just because he stood to inherit a fortune, and she had plans to have him killed after seducing him to get the inheritance. In other words, she was looking for a shortcut to her own glory. But the circus freaks find out about her plan and they find a way to save their friend and get her back. And at the end of the film, they've captured her and mutilated her and turned her into a circus freak like one of them. They actually turn her into an exhibit called the Human Duck. And I won't go into the details on that because it's disgusting. But the point of all this and the reason that I bring it up is because we have someone trying to get in with a group so that they can get a perceived advantage only to realise that they never were anything like the individuals in the group, and actually becoming one of them turns out to be not what she thought. It's not really a good parallel to the story of the humans in the Garden of Eden, but those words, one of us, ring true, because the humans never were one of the gods. So what is God's response to the foolish ambition of the humans? He's going to treat them like children, because they are not like gods, and they do not know what's best for themselves. And now God has to put the dangerous thing out of their reach for their own good, like Dad putting the matches for the stove up on the top shelf in the kitchen next to the whiskey and the dog's medicine, because little kids can't be trusted to make the best decisions for themselves. It should be plain as day by now if you've been following us through the text from the very outset that mankind is not the greatest thing or the pinnacle of God's creation or the reason why God said that everything was very good. This is a theological text, and it is designed to glorify God, not man. Genesis is not the place to start reading if you're looking for something to make you feel good about yourself. At every point in the text, we find that mankind is belittled and humbled and brought low, with the desired effect being that we should stop thinking of ourselves the way we ought to be thinking about God. So the man with his animalistic, selfish tendencies, dressed in the skin of an animal, is reminded that even though 
he tried to achieve the wisdom of the gods, he still needs his father to intervene and keep him safe from the dangers of his own lack of wisdom. We've talked before on the podcast about how the biblical text never refers to the man or his wife using terminology that would imply that they were physically children. They don't get called babies or children or youths or anything like that. They're always spoken of as man and woman. But it should be abundantly clear by now that we've been watching this man and woman come of age in the garden. And we have seen them fail. We were introduced to them naked and unashamed like little children. And now even though they tried to put themselves in a position to determine what was best for themselves, and they are now aware of their nakedness and appropriately dressed, they still have to be kept out of harm's way by the Lord God. So now we need to talk about why they couldn't stay where they were, I guess. Well, what the text tells us is that God wanted to make sure that they could not reach out and take from the tree of life because this would make them live forever. What we really need to grasp here is that the concept of living forever is purely the domain of divine beings. Mortals don't get to live forever. Ordinary people, no matter how great they might be, are still going to die. So when we realise that eternal life is something that only glorious divine beings possess, along with the wisdom and freedom of self-determination that is represented in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, The picture being painted for us is one where the humans had the attributes of divinity within grasp, but they were not ready to handle them. So God's response to this threat, and it's not a threat to him, but it is a threat to the humans because it's, you know, dangerous for them, is to put some distance between himself and the humans, and that means that they have got to go. Yeah, that's right. Now, you might have heard in the past that this was God protecting his holiness and his sacred space and all that kind of thing because he couldn't allow evil in his presence. But seriously, God does not need protection from us. If anything, it is we who need to be protected from God because he is a glorious divine being and infinitely holy, which means that his glorious radiance alone is more than enough to turn us to ashes on the spot. But the text does not tell us that the humans were being removed from the garden because of the threat of God's radiance consuming them. It tells us that God was keeping the power and attributes of divine beings out of our reach. You might have been told that mankind was prevented from achieving eternal life because humans need to be mortal in order to be able to repent. The logic behind this is that it takes a body in order to be able to do things, and that means that you need a body to be able to sin, And you need a body to be able to repent, because without a body, you can't do anything. The problem with that logic is that there are lots of divine beings and disembodied spirits doing evil in scripture, and they do that without the kind of body that we have. So if they can sin without a body like ours, then does that mean they can repent? The people that hold this view would argue that the spirits cannot repent because they don't have a body like we do. So you can see the contradiction there. But when you consider that the Elohim are capable of doing things whether embodied or not, whether good or evil, you realise that embodiment and immortality are not conditions that determine whether an entity is capable of sin or repentance. And that means that when God prevented Adam and Eve from taking of the tree of life, he did not do so in an attempt to prevent them from becoming eternally fallen and incapable of repentance. He did it because if humans can't follow simple instructions, they are not ready for the power of the gods. He did it because it's an act of mercy on God's part to prevent us from becoming permanent enemies of our creator 
on the basis that we simply weren't ready for the glorious things that God has waiting for us. The opportunity was there, the humans had the freedom to choose, and they chose poorly. So now God has to put the scissors away before somebody cuts themselves. You want to know something interesting about this text in our reading today? When God speaks in this verse, he actually stops mid-sentence and doesn't finish saying whatever he was going to say. Instead, he just kicks the man and his wife out of the garden. It's very peculiar. And, just like that, we're going to stop our study right there, and we're going to pick it up again where we left off next week, when we talk about the exile from the Garden of Eden. That looks like one to look forward to, and speaking of looking forward to things, I'm looking forward to a break. Yeah, that's right. We're rapidly approaching the end of this third season of the podcast, and as is our want, we are going to take a month off, which is a bit of a study break for me and a bit of catch-up time for you, the listeners, while we prepare Season 4 of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Something else I've been looking forward to is getting back into our Giant Answers Q&A segment. So here it is for this episode. I want to hear your Giant Questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. Joshua sent in this question via Facebook Messenger. Did Jesus take on a fallen or unfallen nature? And what would you mean by the term that fits best? Now, that is a really interesting question, and I really appreciate that one because it's nice to talk about Jesus for a change on this podcast. I guess a good part of the answer of this question comes from what we've been talking about throughout the course of this podcast series, and in particular, this last season. Beginning from the basic premise that the Lord Jesus Christ took on humanity in its fullness and experienced the reality of what it is to be a human just like we do, I'm going to suggest that Jesus fully understood this thing that we call human nature. And for those who came in late, we've been talking a lot about how human beings are by nature chiefly concerned with their own needs. And our whole perspective revolves around the self. And I think that it is consistent with what the Gospels teach us about Jesus Christ to suggest that Jesus had a will of his own, and sometimes he did not want to do the things that God the Father required of him. And yet... He showed us the perfection of humanity in his submission to his Father, where we could not. Does Jesus having a will of his own and desires of his own make him fallen in his humanity? I don't think so. And the scriptures are clear that Jesus was found without sin. This is John chapter 6 verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Look at what we've been learning about the first man in the Garden of Eden and his wife. Their transgression was not desire. Their transgression was not free will. Their transgression was not entertaining the thought of receiving a privilege that God did not intend for them. It was acting contrary to the word of the Father. Jesus had desires of his own. Jesus had a will of his own. Jesus wanted things that God did not want for him. But Jesus obeyed his Father. Luke 22 verse 42 says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We've talked before on this podcast about the idea that humans were not created according to some kind of Greek philosophical ideal of perfection, which got ruined later on by the fall of man. 
No, people need things. People want stuff. Contentment and obedience are disciplines, not inherently natural virtues of being human. 1 Corinthians 3 verses 1 to 3 But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? I would argue that if Jesus lived as a human and never experienced the natural urges and needs and desires of humanity, then he wasn't really human after all. But as I've already said, I think that the scripture tells us loud and clear that Jesus did experience all these things just like we do. And I think that all humans go through the same thing. We all have these natural desires and these selfish inclinations, but the problem is that we give in to them. We lack maturity and discipline, and that's how we all fall into sin. We need to remember that sin isn't transmitted from your parents. Sin is what you do. Sin doesn't come from your DNA. It's the choices you make. Sin is not some kind of infection that you would get from the world around you. Sin comes from inside. Sin is what you do with those desires and those ambitions that you don't keep in subjection to the will of the Father. Humans don't have a fallen nature. They have a biological predisposition towards self-preservation and self-interest. But that doesn't turn into sin until you fail to apply some maturity and self-discipline to those thoughts and desires. And that's the part where Jesus stands alone above every other human being who ever lived. He was able to master himself and submit to his Father. The best we can hope for is repentance from this moment forward. But Jesus gave his whole life in submission to the will of the Most High. Philippians 2 verses 5 to 8 Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So to answer the question, did Jesus take on a fallen nature? No, he didn't, and I would suggest that no human being is fallen by nature. Self-centred by nature, yes, but Jesus overcame that where we could not, and the Gospels give us plenty of examples to prove it. This is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1-3. to Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And to develop that question further, we could ask if Jesus accomplished in his incarnation the perfecting of human nature so that we are now made perfect because of what Jesus did back then. I don't think that Jesus changed the nature of human beings, but he certainly has made a way for us to transcend that nature. And we can't forget that it is not a once-for-all thing in the sense that we will never feel the urges of the flesh ever again. That would remove our physical humanity from us, and I don't think that that really is in view at all. Even in eternity, the Bible teaches an embodied afterlife, not one that is free of biological nature. This is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. 
Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think we have to keep in mind that Jesus remains our great high priest who intercedes for us and makes us blameless before God, and that never changes. This is the constant ministry of Jesus Christ before God the Father on our behalf, even now, and we need it constantly. The idea that Jesus once and for all perfected humanity effectively nullifies everything that the Scripture teaches us about the priesthood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Our call as Christians is to reach the fullness of maturity in Christ, which means attaining what Adam and Eve could not. But we can't do that on our own. Instead, we attain it through the mercy of Christ as our mediator and our great high priest. That's so good. What a beautiful way to finish this episode of the show. As you said, it's always good to talk about Jesus. And thank you, Joshua, for that great question. We'll be back next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. And we will tackle the uh, exile from Eden and more of your giant questions. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you. See you next time. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Steph on the Amazon, paperback, and Google. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com, Read the blog and have us on socials, don't forget to subscribe to the Friends of the Show. Send us all your questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the treasure. <clears throat> now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the treasure. <laughs> oh, come on. Uh, my voice. Now, lest he reach out his hand. <laughs> now, laugh. I thought I'd never get through that. You know, this is this is a modern translation, and I still have these archaic terms in it, like behold and lest. Nobody says those. Yeah, that was freaky. I've never even heard of that movie. This accounts for a lot of things that I sort of had a little bit of awareness of, but didn't really yeah. all uh, together as a, a thing. Um, yeah, so apparently, like, in the 1920s and 30s, there was, like, a, a stage where... Um, Hollywood films 
had like there was a kind of genre where they did um, like freaky stuff with I guess what they call like body horror, unusual things like that. Oh, you're breaking up, Tim. I can't hear you. I don't know if it's bad internet connection. I don't know what the weather's like Mm. at your place. This is not what I want. We accept her. We accept her. One of us. One of us. Gobble, gobble. Gobble, gobble. One of us. One of us.